If you're new here this morning, my name is Brent Smith. I'm one of the leaders here at Christ Central. Certainly glad that you've joined us. We're going to jump into God's Word. We're back in 2 Corinthians. Um, we finished off chapter 7 last week, so this morning we'll begin to pick our way through chapter 8, which if you know a little bit about the letter of 2 Corinthians, you know that in chapter 8, Paul's going to begin a two-chapter long talk mainly about money and about giving. And a hush falls over the crowd. <laughs> uh, money is one of those controversial topics. Most people operate with the mindset that money is just one of those things that you don't talk about, uh, along with politics and religion. And uh, if we ask someone a financial question, we usually preface it with, uh, if you don't mind me asking, right? We usually say, you know, if you don't mind me asking, what are you paying for rent, or if you don't mind me asking, how much did you buy the car for? Which is, it's too bad if they do mind, because we've already asked the question. <laughs> but we, we kind of have this idea that it's a bit taboo to talk about in our society. And when we come to the church, uh, we can often fall into two categories. We can rarely talk about money, or we can rarely talk about anything else. Uh, maybe we've grown up in a church where money was just not something you talked about, maybe because uh, the pastor didn't want to seem greedy or manipulative, whatever it might be. There were never any messages on money or on giving. Or you might turn on the TV and you might hear a televangelist preach every Sunday on giving. And financial wealth is seen as a, as a spiritual birthright for all of God's children. Of course, it can't be fully tapped into unless you donate to his ministry, but uh, I once heard a televangelist preach a message on, on uh, that fishermen were the most lucrative job in uh, the ancient Middle East, and so by Jesus calling uh, Peter and James and Andrew and John as fishermen, uh, it was a, an example of how he wants all his disciples to be wealthy and in lucrative business. And interestingly enough, at the end, his application wasn't then to go start a fishing business. It was to give to the ministry. So funny enough how that worked. I thought I was getting ready to go start a fish. I had the pole in my hand, but <laughs> then it just took a turn at the end. And I said, oh, well, put the pole down. <clears throat> so unfortunately in the church, uh, we can take uh, approaches to money that just aren't biblical. Either we don't talk about it or it's all we talk about. And that's why it's so important when we come to verses like 2 Corinthians chapter 8 uh, to see what the Bible says about money and specifically about giving and about generosity. So go ahead and open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 8 verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, uh, we have some out at the welcome table that we'd love for you to have. Uh, you can feel free just to duck out and grab one. Uh, it's our gift to you, and it's great because if you're already a little antsy about talking about money, you can pretend to duck out and grab a Bible and then just keep on going, right? I'm kidding. I've actually instructed Keith Warrington to block the door. <clears throat> kidding again. Kidding again. All jokes. All jokes. But just to say, uh, if this is your first time with us and you're like, oh, typical, my first time at church or my first time back in a long time and they're preaching about money, surprise, surprise, just a few things. I'm not after your money this morning. We've already passed the baskets around. 
uh, and to my knowledge, we're not passing them around again. Uh, and this passage is hard to preach on, not because uh, I'm employed by the church. Uh, this is hard to preach on because when I come to a passage like this, I come face to face with my own heart. And 1 Timothy 3.16 talks about Scripture being breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for rebuke, for recrection, for training in righteousness. And at least for myself, when I come to a verse like this, when I come to a passage like this, it's a good old-fashioned rebuke uh, for me because uh, it shows me the selfishness and the stinginess in my own heart and the twisted priorities that I can so easily carry. And so for the next few weeks when I'm up here, uh, money is going to be our focus because it's Paul's focus in the next few chapters. But I personally am not after your money and I'm not presenting myself either as the perfect model of generosity. Far, far from it. So my prayer is that these verses weigh on me and the Spirit uses them to change my heart as well as yours. All right? So 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and our title this morning is The Macedonian Method to Get Rich Quick, where rich doesn't mean what you think it means, and the way to get it isn't what you expect. Just a little clause there at the end, if you can't see that at the bottom, if you're at the back. It's the Macedonian Method to Get, get Rich Quick. So Paul is going to introduce us to the Macedonians, and we'll see that their idea of wealth uh, flips everything on its head. It's kind of an ancient get-rich-quick scheme, all right? So first, here's another ancient get-rich-quick scheme. That is the old-school get-rich-quick scheme. Step one, maim. Step two, pillage. <laughs> thought I'd throw that in. I couldn't resist when I saw it. But that's not our method for today. <laughs> that's a different one. All right? Boom. Maim, pillage, boom. Rich. Almost as easy as the televangelists. All right. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and we're going to read the first five verses this morning. Okay? So let's pray, and then I'll read. So Father, we're so thankful for your presence here with us. We're so thankful that you meet with us in worship. You stir our hearts to you. Uh, you, you help us to fix our eyes on your beauty and your holiness, your majesty. You're so high above us. You're so exalted. It's so amazing that we get to gather to your presence and worship you. We thank you, Father, that you're not cold, you're not distant, but you come and you meet with your people. You presence yourself amongst your people. We thank you for that, Father. We recognize what a high, high privilege it is to say that we are the people of God, that we are your children. And now as we come to your word, uh, we pray that your spirit would work. Uh, we want to praise you. We want to worship you on a Sunday morning. We also want to be changed by you, Father. We want to be more conformed into the image of your Son as your spirit uses your word. And so we pray this morning that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to understand what you want to say to us this morning. We want to be changed, Father. So change us by your spirit according to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, reading the first five verses. <clears throat> Paul says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. 
For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. All right. So, what's happening here? So on the heels of telling his story about his reunion with Titus, we looked at that a few weeks ago, uh, Paul then seems to kind of jump cold right into this uh, talking about collecting money. And so what in the world is going on? Well, from about A.D. 52 to A.D. 57, much of Paul's time and energy was focused on organizing a collection uh, for the Gentile, from the Gentile churches that he planted and oversaw for Jerusalem, or more specifically, Romans 15, 26 says it was for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. So one of the main reasons for their poverty was a famine that had hit a few years earlier, overpopulation in the area, food shortages, famine. That's how it works. So on top of that, uh, the Jews were subject to a crippling twofold taxation. So they had taxes uh, from the Jews and they had taxes from the Romans. Uh, so they kind of had a hand in each pocket, as it were. And then on top of all that, many Jews who turned to Christ were then abandoned by their families. And so they would have been ostracized socially and economically. And so with all those things going on, the, the poor saints in Jerusalem were in great, great need. And so it's important to note that this isn't the first time uh, the Corinthians had heard about the collection uh, back uh, in an earlier letter to, to them, a letter that Paul wrote that we refer to as 1 Corinthians, in chapter 16 of that letter, Paul says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so also uh, are you to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you would credit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. So that's 1 Corinthians 16, 1-4, where Paul talks already to the Corinthians about the collection for the saints. And even in that note, the way Paul says, now concerning the collection for the saints, seems to indicate that even that wasn't the first time that he's brought it up. We know that he's written other letters before 1 Corinthians to them. And so the Corinthians aren't in the dark here. They know what's up. How much progress they've made in collecting isn't really clear. Uh, in all likelihood, the collection was probably held up a bit because of the uh, relational tension, the relational turmoil between Paul and the Corinthians that we've talked about for a while. But now with Titus coming back with his good report that we read about in chapter 7, Paul's feeling the restoration of his relationship with him, and so he's able to bring this topic back up and push for them to finish it up. And sometimes life is like that, isn't it? There's some practical things that we need to get done, but you can't move forward until the relationship is right. Maybe you're in a car with your wife, you have a disagreement, yes, you need to get somewhere, probably best to put the blinker on, pull over, and get things right or it's going to be a very long drive, right? Theoretically speaking, of course. <laughs> <clears throat> uh, 
But that's what Paul does here. Uh, he, uh, that's what he's done with this issue with the collection. He's not going to bring that up while there's a lot of tension between them, right? So a few chapters ago, he puts the blinker on, he pulls over, he makes things right. Now he's ready to pull back out on the road and address this issue of collecting money for Jerusalem, okay? So Paul's no dummy either. Even when he brings it back up, he just doesn't jump right in with a plea. He first shows the Corinthians an example, right? It's never really good to say, oh, I'm glad we're all on the same page. Now, how about that 20 bucks you owe me, right? He just doesn't jump right in with a plea. He shows them an example first. He shows the Corinthians the example of the Macedonians. And just for just to help you wrap your head around a bit of the New Testament, the Macedonians that we're going to keep referring to, you can read about them in Paul's letters to uh, the Thessalonians and the Philippians. That, 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 uh, they all fall under that broad brush of Macedonians. So that's who we're, who we're talking about. And so through Paul's story, he's showing them and us the nature of the Macedonians' generosity. And that's what I want to focus on this morning. And I know when I read uh, this story in the first few verses of chapter 8, I think, man, how can I give like that? How can that be said of me? How can that be said of Christ central? How can we, we be wealthy in generosity like these guys were? So that's what we're going to look at. So the Macedonian method to get rich quick, quick where rich doesn't mean what you think it means, and the way to get there isn't what you expect, okay? So here's the process. First, first step is that grace comes down. We see that right in chapter 1. Paul says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. So first, there is a receiving of the grace of God. The Macedonians had received a grace of giving from God. And this grace of giving flowed from the primary source of grace, which is God's grace to them for salvation. God's grace in reconciling sinners to Himself. God's grace that even though we are yet sinners, God loved us and sent Jesus to die for us. That even though Jesus knew no sin, He became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. That even though Jesus had done nothing out of God's great love, He takes our sin, goes to the cross, takes on that sin, absorbs the wrath of God against that sin, dies, raises to new life, and gives us that new life in Him. And it's nothing that we have done. It's nothing of our works. It doesn't come because you read so many verses in the Bible. It doesn't come because you spent so many hours in prayer. It doesn't come because you've served in this area and that area and you've logged this many hours doing that and that and that. It comes only by the grace of God so that there's no boasting on our part. By grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. That is the grace of God toward us. We were dead in our sin, and He made us alive. He lavished His grace 
upon us. So that's what we need to get first. There is a coming down of grace upon us. So yes, Paul points the Corinthians and us to the example of the Macedonians, but he's quick to remind us that what they did in serving others was the fruit of what God had done in serving them. So any and all talk about giving and generosity has to start with God's giving of His Son to us. So God is the greatest giver. God is the original giver. Later, Paul talks about how the Macedonians had given them of themselves to the Lord. That only happens because God had first given of Himself to them. So if we talk about generosity without first recognizing God's grace towards us, it can, be, it can very quickly either become a crippling guilt trip or it can very quickly become just a prideful show. Any talk of giving has to first start with God's giving of His great grace to us because all of our giving is just a reflex of God's giving to us. All of our giving is just a reflex of God's giving to us. If you go back into 1 Chronicles 29, David is speaking about the fundraising campaign going on that will eventually go towards the building of of Solomon's temple. And he says to God in verse 14 of 1 Chronicles 29, For all things come from you, and of your own have we given you. So two very important truths there when we're talking about giving and we're talking about God's grace. All things come from God. David says earlier in that chapter, all riches and honor come from God. So it doesn't matter if the money in your bank account has come from hard work in a labor or in a trade uh, or if it came from shrewd business deals, all riches have come from God. God, whether it's $10 riches or $10 million riches, it all comes from God. We need to let that sink in first. All riches have come from God. All things come from you. And then David says, and of your own have we given you. Or the NIV says, we have given you only what comes from your hand. We have given you only what comes from from your hand. So see, do, you, do you see the picture there that, that David is saying? We have only given you what has originally come from your hand to us, right? So ultimately, our giving is a giving to God. We have given you and only what comes from your hand. If you give, give $10, there's a recognition that that $10 first came from God. If you give $10 million, there's a recognition that that $10 million first came from God, right? It's not like, it's not like well, I've, you know, I earned this money, and then when I reach this level, well, then all riches come from God. No, anything you have has come from God. So how can we boast then in our giving? How can we then say, look at my giving, and look what I've done, and I've funded this, and I've done that. Look at me, and God's saying, it all came from me, in the first place, right? It's like at Christmas when my kids buy me a Christmas present with the money that I gave them the week before, right? <laughs> <clears throat> they come on Christmas morning and they say, 
we have given you what you've freely given us from your hand, right? <clears throat> Somewhat like that. <laughs> we have given you only what comes from your hand. <clears throat> but we need to see this. Paul says, we want you to know, Corinthians, we want you to know Christ Central. Take note of this. Pay attention to this. Don't lose sight of this. We want you to know about the grace of God that has been given. We want you to know about the grace of God that has been given. All of our giving is a reflex of God's giving to us. It's His grace that enables. His grace is a power in us that enables us to then give. And how does it do that? Well, first, grace comes down. Second, joy rises up. All right? So we see that in verse 2. Their abundance of joy. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. So upon receiving God's grace, the Macedonians experienced a joy rising up in their heart. We know it's a joy rising up out of the receiving of God's grace because Paul tells us that the Macedonians were in the midst of severe affliction and extreme poverty. So this isn't just some circumstantial joy. Paul didn't just catch them on a good week, right? They weren't just having a great day and Paul just happened to hit it at the right time and they said, yeah, we'll give. No, they were in severe affliction. They were in extreme poverty and they were abounding in joy, right? So we know it wasn't circumstantial joy. It was a joy that had risen up in their hearts out of receiving God's grace. They were in affliction, and not just affliction, severe affliction, and not just poverty, extreme poverty. When I was a kid, my dad had these Jacques Cousteau books. Does anyone know Jacques Cousteau? Yeah. If you don't, he was like this ocean explorer guy in the mid-90s, or, or mid-1900s. And he had like 20 or 30 of these white books, Jacques Cousteau. I have no idea where he got them. No idea why he kept them, because it looked like no one had ever read them. But anyway, so Jacques Cousteau would go down to the depths of the ocean in this like bubble thing with a window on the front, right? And that's called a bathysphere, okay? This little bubble that Jacques Cousteau would get in with the little window, and he'd go right down to the ocean floor. That word bathysphere comes from the same word that Paul used here to say extreme poverty, all right? So the, the Macedonians were in ocean depths poverty, okay? They were deep down poor, okay? So that's the picture here. They were down to the depths poor. And personally, I would struggle to say that anyone in our present setting can relate to what extreme poverty in an ancient setting would look like. On top of all that, Paul says they were severely afflicted. They were being crushed by life. The world around them was pushing in on them. So they were poor and they were picked on, right? They were being persecuted. They were being afflicted. All the while, they're in the midst of this extreme poverty to the extent that we, if we're honest, we, we can't really wrap our heads around what that would look like. We can't really wrap our heads around what severe affliction and extreme poverty in that first century 
would look like for us. In that situation, in those circumstances, Paul says they had abundant joy. In severe affliction and in extreme poverty, they had abundant joy. Psalm 4, 7 says, You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. You, God, have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. The Macedonians had grabbed hold of that. So money had made the same empty promises of peace and comfort and security and contentment to the Macedonians that it makes to us today. But grace had broken the chains of greed in their lives and had allowed true joy to rise up in their hearts. It's in God's presence where we find fullness of joy and at His right hand where we know pleasures forevermore. Not in the presence of your next paycheck and not at the right hand of your next promotion. It's in God's presence and at His right hand. There's an interesting verse in Hebrews 10.34 and it talks of a people who joyfully accepted the plundering of their property since they knew that they had a better possession and an abiding one. So if somebody steals your coat, but it's not your best coat, you can say, well, I hope that coat helps them and keeps them warm and I've got this much better coat here, right? That's what they're saying. They joyfully accepted the plundering of their property because they knew they had a much better property. That's hard to wrap your head around, isn't it? We have a better reward with God. We have a better treasure with God. If this morning you feel like you're in the midst of severe affliction, you feel like your property is being plundered, as it were, it may be that God is wanting you to see more clearly the joy that's found in Him. It may be that God's wanting to loosen the grip of the empty promises of money and materialism in your life so that true joy can rise up. It's like Gary was saying earlier, don't misinterpret your affliction. So often when we are afflicted, we think, oh, it's an absence of God's grace in my life. But Paul is showing us that it can be a sign of God's great grace in your life. Because in the midst of that extreme poverty and that severe affliction, God has just taken the fingers off of their grip of finding joy in money and joy in materialism. And he's showing them that a true, greater, fuller joy is found in him. So don't misinterpret your affliction. Don't misinterpret your affliction. God's at work. And so often we find ourselves in affliction or lacking in some area and our, and our go-to is to say, well, when are people going to help me? What is the church going to do for me? I know when I'm in need, that's my first reaction is, well, who's going to come to my aid? 
And that's what makes these Macedonians so challenging to at least my way of life is that of all the people who would be deserving to say, to just kind of turn inward and to pull back and say, hey, we're in a desperate situation. We need help. We're the ones who need help. Look at us over here. All, everyone in severe affliction, raise your hand. Us. Everyone in extreme poverty, raise your hand. Us. And we're talking about giving. We're talking about pack it, passing the basket around and collecting for someone that we've never met before. Of all people, they would be justified in just pulling back from that. And yet they have abundant joy. And they beg Paul to let them give. They had a clear view of what this affliction was doing in their life. They had a, a true view of what real riches were. They had abundant joy in the midst of some pretty desperate circumstances because they had received the grace of God in their lives. And that joy isn't just spent on themselves. The end of verse 2 shows us that that joy overflowed then into a generosity for others. So step three, generosity spills over. Grace comes down, joy rises up, generosity spills over. Paul says, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. So what Paul wants us to see is that the Macedonians didn't experience some great financial blessing that resulted in their abundant joy, but that their abundant joy in something else resulted in great financial blessing for others. Okay? We've got to see that. We've got to see that. Their the Macedonians didn't experience some great financial blessing that resulted in their abundant joy. Instead, they found an abundant joy in something else that then resulted in great financial blessing to others. It completely spins everything on its head. So much of what we hear, either blatantly or kind of subversive, is give yourself to God, he will bless you financially and you will be happy. But Paul is saying, God has given Himself to you. Be happy in that and bless others financially. Give yourself to God. He will bless you financially and you will be happy. And Paul's saying, no. God has given Himself to you. Be happy in that and give yourself, bless others financially. Notice how Paul says that they were in extreme poverty, but they were wealthy. They had a wealth of generosity. So there is a richness that has nothing to do with how much money you have. They had next to nothing, but Paul calls them wealthy. They had a wealth of generosity. Why? Because out of their poverty they gave, even though in quantitative terms, what they gave would probably not be much compared to what a rich uh, trade city like Corinth could give. In light of what was available to them, what they gave 
was staggering. It was a wealth of generosity. So your level of generosity has nothing to do with the amount of money in your bank account. They were dirt poor, but they were rich in generosity. So we have every level of income in this room, from lots of money to students trying to find creative ways to eat Mr. Noodles, right? Every level of finance. And what Paul is showing us is that all of us have the ability to be generous. All of us are able to be generous because our generosity is not dependent on how much money we've earned, but on the grace and the joy of God that we've received. We need to see this because it's easy for us to get caught in the lie that if we just had a little more, how generous we would then be. If we just had a little bit more, well then, think of all that I would give. So I've only been working at the church for seven years, and I've had a weird amount of times where someone has come up to me and said, I had a dream last night that I won $100 million, and I gave a million dollars to the church so you could build a new building. And I'm thinking, what in the world do you need $99 million for? (laughs) What are we even talking about here? That's not a wealth of generosity to write to the Corinthians about, right? We can just get caught up in this, oh, if I had this much money and oh, I'd give and that. And what are we, what are we even talking about? If you have a dream like that, don't share it again, please. <clears throat> you can repent and you can blame it on the nachos or something. Read the story of Joseph. Sharing crazy dreams can get you in trouble. (laughs) But our level of generosity has nothing to do with how much money we make. We're so accustomed and the world just feeds into us so much to think about terms of, of, of rich and poor with amounts and, and, and Paul just wants to reorient everything in our head when it comes to money, everything in our heart. I read an interesting thing this week, uh, as some of you know, that I, I uh, am a fan of the NFL and it's free agency week. And so there's a lot of people making a lot of money this week as they sign new deals with new teams. But I came across this interesting article. Uh, Nate Solder is an offensive lineman in the NFL. Uh, He played multiple seasons with the Patriots, became a free agent this week, signed a new deal with the New York Giants. Won't make any comment on that, but but, uh, he became the highest paid player at his position in the NFL. Uh, And in his introductory press conference, he said this. You just got to think how in 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 a press room with all the reporters, just think of how countercultural this statement is, okay? Because so often it's, I leave this team and I'm looking for the highest. Who's going to pay me the most? They can talk about winning championships and all that, but so often it is, which team is going to pay me the most? That's why you see so many people sign with the Browns this week. Anyway, (laughs) off to the side. Nate Solder says this, shame on me if this money only helps the Solder family. 
My belief is that this money has been entrusted to me not for my family's personal comfort and security, but for an actual impact that we can have on our community and the people around us. I'm an imperfect person. I'm going to make mistakes, so I have to rely on Jesus. We have relied on Jesus all through our suffering with our son and everything that goes on in life. So we have to do the same thing with our rejoicing and when things are going well. We have to rely on Him. By God's grace, we joyfully look forward to the momentary impact for the New York Giants, a lifetime of impact on our communities, and an eternal impact for the kingdom of God. Me and my family could not be more thankful and excited, so it's just a great time. No, I couldn't have ever expected this, but we believe that it's God's wishes, not ours, to make the impact in our communities for the kingdom of God, for people that are less fortunate for us. It's nothing about us having a bigger house, a nicer car, or anything like that. Like I said, shame on me if it's just about us. But that mindset is not dependent on signing a $69 million contract. That's a mindset that we can all carry. Shame on us if it's just about us. Grace comes down. Joy rises up. Generosity flows out. And lastly, Paul shows us that commitment, love, pushes that generosity out even further. He says, For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. So Paul says that the Corinthians gave beyond their means. They begged to give. Paul wasn't forcing them to. He wasn't guilt-tripping them into it or intimidating them. He wasn't promising them relief from their poverty or affliction if they gave. They begged to do it. And when he said, okay, you can give, they gave beyond what they were able to give. They gave more. So what led them to do that? In verse 5, it says, before they gave financially, they had first given themselves to God and to other Christians. There was a commitment there. They had tasted something of God's grace given to them and they responded by giving their lives to Him. And so giving of their finance was, in a sense, easy. It's easy to surrender part when we've already given the whole. They had given their whole lives. Whatever change they had in the jar at home didn't seem like much in comparison. They had committed themselves first to the Lord. Jesus can have our finances without it affecting our hearts, but He cannot have our hearts without it affecting our finances. The Macedonians committed themselves to the Lord. We're all in! And it had massive implications on their finances. But don't miss as well that they committed themselves to others. Paul says they gave of themselves to us. And that's that deep community life that we talked about last time. The Macedonians didn't know who these poor saints in Jerusalem were. They would never meet them. 
but this unity in Christ compelled them to give. They wanted to see the church prosper. They wanted to see the church cared for. Even though they themselves were in a desperate situation upon hearing of their brothers and sisters in Jerusalem in the midst of a famine, they couldn't just ignore it. We must give, Paul. Let us give, Paul. You can almost picture Paul closing the meeting in prayer and then someone at the back says, pass the basket. Let us give. Don't stop it here, Paul. And Paul's like, all right, let's pass the basket. And they gave beyond what they were able to. This deep love drove their giving out even further so that they gave beyond their means. So why does Paul tell this story to the Corinthians? What's his point here in the first few verses of chapter 8? Paul's whole point to the Corinthians is that same grace from God is available to them. That same grace of God that kick-started all of that in the Macedonians is available to them. That's why he's bringing this up. <clears throat> we want you to know, Corinthians, about the grace of God. And then he shows how it followed after. So Paul's whole point to us is that that same grace from God is available to us this morning. The Macedonians were not unique. They're not special in any sense. They were men and women who received God's grace, recognized that all that they had from their great salvation to the change in their pockets was a gift from God. They let joy from that rise up in their hearts, and then they saw that spill over into generosity to others. And when that combined with the commitment to others, that unity, that love, that we talked about last time, it resulted in massive, sacrificial, countercultural, radical generosity that shook Paul, it shook the Corinthians, and it shakes us today. So, what kind of impact would that have here in our church, for our city, and beyond? It had a massive impact on the early church. What kind of impact would it have here? What would happen if we as a church let this gospel of grace, this good news of Jesus, take us to uncharted regions of generosity? Whew. What would happen if we as a church just let that grace of God sink in so that joy rises up, we become known as a joyful joyful church and that spills over into generosity radical generosity for others that's what i'm praying that it does in my own life in all our lives let's pray God, we love that it always starts with You. We love that it starts with Your grace. We love that we can look to You and we can see that You first give to us. 
that you're the greatest giver, that you're the original giver, that you started all. Stand here this morning and we can say that you have given us not just, uh, you know, piddly little things. You have given us the life of your Son for our salvation. You have taken us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. We were rebels against you and you gave us of your Son so that we could be adopted as your children. You are a great and generous and giving and gracious God and we praise you for it, Father. We pray this morning that that would sink deep down in our hearts. That we'd have an experience of your grace that would just free us, that joy would rise up, that joy would cut any cords of greed and selfishness in our hearts, and that joy would spill over into radical generosity for others. We pray that we ourselves would would share that commitment like the Macedonians, that we'd give of ourselves to you and we'd give of ourselves to others. We pray, Father, that you'd work these things in our heart because we see through the example of the Macedonians that this radical generosity can have a massive impact on your church, on the cities we live in, on this nation. We pray that you would do it in our hearts, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, guys.